So we see the Father, we see the Son, and we see the Spirit. When God acts, it is the Trinity that's acting. And what I love about the Son here is that what we learn is that the second person is not just the great creator. He's also the new Adam. So if God's the first actor and he makes Adam, and in the new story, in the New Testament, he is both the creator and he's the new Adam. We're being told again from the very beginning, this is a story about God. We also are told that Christians are new creations in Christ. And God takes nothings and makes them into somethings. And he breathed the breath of life into Adam. And he breathes his spirit into us in our baptism. You're listening to Life on the West Side. Here's Nathan Guy. I really appreciate that in Ralph's prayer there at the end, he used the word blessing. Now, that's a word that appears a lot in the book of Genesis. We're going to see tonight why that's so very important. This is a series where we're looking for the gospel in every book of the Bible. And we're going to look in Genesis. Now, if you're somebody who is uh, thinking about or already does write in your Bible, I'll tell you what I do here is I use a red pen because we all know red refers to the words of Jesus. And so I have different colored pens and I like to use a red pen for places where in the Old Testament I see the gospel. And I'll kind of another way of putting this is these are sort of red letter notes from my Bible. And we're looking in the book of Genesis. Genesis is an adventure book. It's an account of human failures and wars and family intrigue and deception and international slave trade and famines and miraculous births. That's a quote from Michael Williams. Another way to put it is what they say in the movie, The Princess Bride, right? Sword fighting, revenge, miracles, true love. The very first verse of Genesis tells us something about the gospel. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I noticed that God comes first. That's actually an important element of the gospel. If you take a look at Paul's book of Ephesians, There are 43 commands in the book of Ephesians. A command, for example, can be simple. Like in chapter 2 in verse 11 of Ephesians, Paul says, remember. I know that seems simple, but believe it or not, that technically is a command. I mention that one because 43 commands in the book of Ephesians, 42 of them, are in the second half of the book. Remember is the only command in the first three chapters of a six-chapter book. What Paul's doing in the book of Ephesians is he begins with God. He ends with you. In other words, let me tell you what God has done, and then we'll talk about how we can respond. God comes first. 
First in sequence, first in importance, God's the primary agent. The first thing Genesis says is God acted. In salvation, the first thing that should come to our mind is that God acted. For God so loved the world that he sent his son. First John says, here's how we know love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and gave himself to die for us. God is the first actor. He's the first agent. He's the first person mentioned. And it's his story. We also see that the very first chapter is about creation. The very last chapter of the Bible is about God's new creation, what we call heaven. And so the whole book, where we're heading in the book, is pointed out in the very first chapter. If part of the gospel is that God is foreseeing a plan to make everything right, the language we're going to use at the end of the story about how to make everything right is language borrowed from the very beginning of the story. Starting in verse 3 of chapter 1 and going all the way through the chapter. We're not going to do this with every verse, I promise. We see that God's creation is ordered and good. And what do you learn from the fact that creation is ordered and good? He calls it good several times. He calls it blessed several times, which tells me it's something worth saving. And when we have the language where God so loved the world, sometimes the world's a stand-in for people. Sometimes it refers to the things he's made. Sometimes it refers to the whole cosmos. Sometimes it refers to everything in, on earth and above the earth and under the earth. But whatever you want to use for the language of it, it means God makes something, he thinks it's good, and when he enacts his saving plan, it's to save something he sees value in. God sees value in you. And we ought to see value in everyone else. I also see the Trinity at work. I don't actually know what the first readers of Genesis would have thought. Because the language about how we talk about God grows over time throughout the scriptures. This is normal. God didn't reveal everything to the very first people. There's growth in terms of how God reveals himself. But there's seeds in chapter one that tell us there's more to God than you might think. For example, we Christians believe that God is father, son, and spirit. And in chapter one and verse 26, we have plural language. Let us make man in our own image. Hebrews says we're not made in the image of angels. So who's he talking to? It could be a royal we. Maybe that's a way Israelites talked about a very important person in plural language. But remember how the New Testament often says this is how it may have been understood by the first readers. But let's look at a second layer now that we know the full story. In the very second verse, after it says God created the heavens and the earth, it says the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The New Testament tells us that Jesus, the second person of the Godhead, the Son, isn't just someone who was an afterthought or the first creation of God. He is the creator God. 
John chapter 1 and verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and nothing was made without Him. For all things were made through Him. So we see the Father, we see the Son, and we see the Spirit. When God acts, it is the Trinity that's acting. And what I love about the Son here is that what we learn is that the second person is not just the great creator. He's also the new Adam. So if God's the first actor and he makes Adam, and in the new story, in the New Testament, he is both the creator and he's the new Adam, we're being told again from the very beginning, this is a story about God. It's a story about God. God playing every role. We also are told that Christians are new creations in Christ. And God takes nothings and makes them into somethings. And he breathed the breath of life into Adam. And he breathes his spirit into us in our baptism. I also learn that creation was intended for humanity to enjoy. It's good, it's ordered, it leads to rest, and God thinks it's all very good. But then he makes man, he makes woman, and he says, I want you to eat up the fruit of the tree, which means God had to make trees before he makes humans. And he says, I want the trees to produce fruit, which means God has to make light before he makes the trees. And he says, the humans, I want you to name all the animals, which means he has to make the animals, both the fish of the sea, the fowl of the air, and those that are on land before he makes humans. You see, humans were meant to act like God in the world. There are four basic questions that we find uh, explained in the Bible, but you can also see them in Genesis. Where are we? Who are we? What went wrong? And what's the solution? Well, Genesis 1 through 3 answers the first three questions. Where are we? Well, creation is distinct from God, but dependent on God. Creation's good. It reveals a good God. Good in God's sight. And we're good because we're made by God. Who are we? We are created beings created to rule in the image of God. Created to serve like priests. Created in relationship, male and female. To fill the world with more images of God. What's gone wrong? Well, that's chapter three. Sin infects every part of life for every human being. It's important to notice this. Because the gospel's so big and so important that God comes to save helpless, powerless people. You need to see what we're talking about. When sin enters the garden and God begins explaining how the curse applies, please notice in Genesis 3, he tells the woman, I'm going to increase your pain in childbirth. So sin is going to have some effect involving our children, progeny. And he says, I'm going to... Curse the ground. So sin's going to have some effect on our work and where we live. And not just your progeny and where you live. 
we have a third issue here. We have the issue of blessing. Blessing is your inheritance. And what happens to Adam and Eve? They lose their inheritance. Kicked out of the garden. So if God's going to reverse the curse, it's going to have to have something to do with hope concerning our future children, the seed. It's going to have to have something to do with hope about the land. It's going to have to have something about hope about our inheritance and our livelihood. And so, in chapter 4, we have the story of Cain and Abel. And can I just say, you can read that story and say, well, this is a story about why it's wrong to kill your brother. Yes, that's right. But isn't it also a story where we see God accepting the younger over the older? Do we, do we see a story where the older, in some way, ends up being told you should have served the younger rather than try to use power over the younger? It's going to be a theme throughout the book of Genesis. Think about Esau and Jacob. Think about Joseph being one of the younger ones, but chosen. It's going to be true about David. And we're going to learn later in the New Testament that whoever wants to be greatest of all must be servant of all. And when God chooses the least, the Bible says, the least of all, Judah, out of you shall come the one who shall be king. So creation, creation tells us something about the gospel. What about covenant? That's the second major point. Covenant appears throughout the book of Genesis in different ways. God, the first time we hear the word covenant is in Genesis 6, where God makes a clear deal with humanity, and that's a covenant with Noah. And I want you to notice some things about covenant. First, God chooses someone solely on the basis of his grace. He looks at the earth, and the Bible says everybody was doing wrong, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. I love that language. Yes, the New Testament points out about Noah being righteous. Absolutely. But you know how the story ends. Noah does some unrighteous things. God knows that. Noah's chosen because God chose him. So God chooses someone to make a covenant with and then second, he promises to keep his end of the bargain. Look in Genesis 8 and verse 22. He promises to keep his end of the bargain. A covenant is God choosing someone to make a covenant with. It's God making a promise to keep his end of the bargain. Number three, a sacrifice is given. Genesis 8, 20 through 21. And then fourth, there's a sign to remind people that the covenant is reliable. It's a rainbow. We're going to see those same four appear later with Abraham. God's going to make the choice in Genesis 12. Abraham, I choose you. Then he's going to make a promise. He's going to say, I am going to give you more children than the stars in the sky. And I'm going to bless the whole world through you. 
And then a sacrifice is going to be given. It's done in two parts. Right then and there, Abraham separates out some animals and puts them on both sides. It's kind of a weird passage unless you realize what's happening is sacrifice is involved in a covenant. But maybe even a greater example is a few chapters later, Genesis 22, where God, who had already told Abraham, I am going to show you a true sign of the covenant between you and me, a miraculous birth. Your wife, Sarah, is going to give birth to a child. This is in chapter 18. And Sarah laughs about it. She does give birth. Abraham knows the promise. But when the boy is young, in chapter 22, God says, I want you to take the promised child and I want you to take him up the mountain and I want you to sacrifice him. Covenant involves sacrifice. It's interesting to me that it's on the third day they go up on the mountain. Keep that in mind for a second. And they go up there and they're looking for a sacrifice. The boy is, uh, Dad, did you, did you bring anything to sacrifice? And he says, the Lord will provide. I actually have uh, something about that I want to uh, say. I'm skipping a lot here. He's in the King James, it says... Um, Oh, here it is. In the King James, it says, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. I love the way that's worded because put the emphasis somewhere else for a second. God will provide himself a lamb for the burnt offering. And when he raises his hand, showing a willingness to involve himself in sacrifice, the angel stops him. A voice from heaven. Since you won't spare your son, your only son, I will bless you. And notice the blessing. It was mentioned in Genesis 12. It's mentioned again here. The blessing is land and seed and promise. So there's a promise made. There's a sacrifice given. And then there's a sign of the covenant. And the sign is circumcision. This is how we know that we're separated and different. I can't help but think that in the New Covenant, we learn from this that God chooses a people. That's us. Ephesians says, you were chosen in him before the foundations of the world. And second, God makes a promise to keep his end of the bargain. I will never leave you nor forsake you. A sacrifice is given, but we don't have what it takes. So his son dies in our behalf. A sign is given. Galatians 3 says, You are all sons of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And in 1 Corinthians 11, he says, Whenever you take the Lord's Supper, you show his death until he comes. It seems to me that baptism and the Lord's Supper are signs of the covenant. One, at the entrance of entering to the covenant. And one, a sign of continual acceptance of the covenant. But there's something added to the Abraham covenant that wasn't with the Noah covenant. And that's obligations. In Genesis 17 and verse 14, he says, if we're going to have a deal, 
I expect something from you. I want you to hold up a way of life that shows you accept my covenant. We see that in James chapter 2. Faith without works is dead. You show me how somebody lives, and I'll tell you what somebody believes. And yet the same story of Abraham that James uses to talk about the importance of how you live your life, Paul uses in Romans to say, Abraham believed God, and it was credited as righteousness. So on the one hand, the Abraham story says, Abraham was chosen solely by grace, and he was a member of the covenant by faith. And on the other hand, you know he was a member of the covenant by faith because he followed the will of the Lord. And Paul and James point that out in different ways. We see in Genesis 18, three strangers who come to Abraham to give him a blessing. And if you keep reading, sometimes it'll say there were three strangers. Sometimes it will say there were angels. But on occasion, it'll say, as one of them was talking, and then Abraham talks back, it says, Then the Lord said, which lets you know that at least one or all three, maybe more than representatives of God, maybe God. In fact, they start walking and talking. And they get to the end of the road, and it says the two went on to the city of Sodom, and Abraham was left standing in the presence of the Lord. That God would condescend and come to his people to make covenant with them. Is that not the gospel? I have 12 more pages. We have other examples quickly. In Genesis 21, I got a bunch about Lot, but we'll skip that for now. In Genesis 21, Hagar seems like a minor character. Remember, the chosen child is Isaac through Sarah. So let's just kick Hagar out of the story. God doesn't do that. Hagar is no longer a centerpiece in the story. She's been kicked out. But the Bible says, God says, I've heard the voice of the boy, and I will provide, and I will make sure you have a future. And the boy was with God, and God was with him, and he grew. Already we're seeing the outskirts of the story in which God isn't just going to work through Israel. God is at work and present in every place, and no one is outside of earshot of his voice. The gospel. In the story of Joseph, yes, it's a story of a technicolor dream coat. Yes, there's a lot of good bedtime stories in that, but is it not also a gospel of redemption? At just the right time, a son of Abraham who is favored by his father is treated badly by his own people, even to the point of death. He spends years in the wilderness of prison, but he rises to become a ruler at the right hand of the person in power to protect his chosen people and to welcome them into the land of plenty. I hear the gospel being told if we listen to it. 
I see throughout the book of Genesis God being kind to the people of Abraham because they're special to him. And over and over again, the text says, don't fear. I am with you because I made a promise to Abraham and I will protect his seed. It's in Genesis 26, 24. It's in Genesis 28, 13. It's in Genesis 31, 42. And it's in the New Testament. There's Mary, scared to death, wondering what to do in Luke chapter 1. And the angel appears and says, if you've been reading your Bible, you know the script. Fear not. God is with his people. And he will protect you because he made a promise. And that promise is coming true. A child of Abraham, the seed of David, is going to change the world. And the whole world's going to be blessed through him. Because this is what I do. I keep covenant with my people. Genesis is an opportunity to see God at work revealing more about himself so that it highlights what we're going to see even more fully in the New Testament of what it means for God to have a rescue mission for the world. And if we have eyes to see it, we'll begin to see it in every story, even the difficult ones, even the ones that look like wrath and frustration and vengeance are actually stories of protection. A whole world that's turned their back on God and there's eight people who want him. So God clears the deck to allow a world to be in line with those who want to follow him. Oh, we have Lot's wife who turns back and turns into a pillar of salt. And what do you do with that story? Can I tell you? God said, if you can find 10 righteous people, I'll save the whole place. You're already getting the signs of a God who wants to save, not condemn. They can't find 10. They find Lot and his family. They pull Lot out for a second and Lot says, but wait, I've got some more things I got to do. And God says, I'll wait. I'll wait. There's his patience. When Lot's wife turns back, it's a symbol of the fact that her heart was still there. And if God lets her go, it's going to be the same story all over again in a new place to protect the story. It's not all punitive. It's also protective. And that's why in the New Testament, Lot, who if you read Genesis, does a lot of really dumb things. He's called righteous Lot. I can go into detail about that. But the only thing about that that I want to leave with is this. If you look at your own list of sins and embarrassing facts and wonder, how could God save somebody like me? Can I tell you, not only will he save someone like you, but one day he may tell a story to the angels or to some other people and say, let me tell you a story about righteous Jim, righteous Sarah, righteous Dan, because he sees us in the best light, the light that he created on day one.
Thanks for joining. No one has ever loved you like Jesus Christ. I hope you feel that love in every sermon that's preached on this podcast. You can find more sermons, transcripts, study guides at nathanguide.com. Please stay tuned for another lesson and rest in the love of Christ.